Welcome to St. Alphonsus Wellcast, the podcast where we explore the many facets of health and well-being. This podcast is brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Well-Being and a generous grant from the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast, the St. Alphonsus Wellcast. My name is Amy James and I'm a registered dietitian and today we've got a few people joining us. We've got Gabrielle Bubar, she's another fellow dietitian. Hi Gabby. Hello. I'm going to call you Gabby even that's though I fine. introduced you as Gabrielle. Nope, that's good. Uh, we also have Kim Cleveland, she's our nurse practitioner. Hi Kim. Hello. And of course we've got our lovely Candy Zapia. Hello Candy. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about something a little controversial. Let's chat about diet culture or what you might have heard of as referred to as fad diets. Um, we're going to address specifically three of the most prominent diets that we see in our office currently, which includes the keto diet, intermittent fasting, and the paleo diet. Uh, you might think as healthcare and nutrition professionals here that we're just going to take the next half hour or so and debunk or balk at or kind of poo-poo these trends, but what we're actually looking to do is more of a rundown of the science, looking at why these are so wildly popular, what potential benefits they have to offer, um, and then also why they may not be a good fit for everybody. So hopefully taking the next 30 to 40 minutes or so and unpacking as much as we can um, to get you guys at least a good foundation of of these three um, fad diets. So let's start with, in my humble opinion, the most popular, the one that I hear more often the keto diet. So we're going to refer to Gabby for this one. And so she'll start with giving us some like history, a little bit of background, and then we'll kind of chat amongst ourselves about its relevance today and um, some other things. So Gabby, take it away. Great. Yeah. So for those of you that don't know, the keto diet is essentially a high fat, moderate protein and low carbohydrate diet. So what people that are following this diet are going to do is they're going to cut out or limit, pretty restrictive, their carbs, and then eat the fats and the protein um, for energy. But have you had those keto treats from Costco? <laughs> I know Kim likes the keto uh, granola balls. There are so many products There's a lot of products. There. There's even like Franz makes the, uh, the keto, keto bread, bread now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of products out there. I was talking about that with a, a patient yesterday. The yes. Fra- the Franz bread. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that is something that's, um, you know, kind of different because typically you'd limit like your grains, your starchy vegetables, fruits, legumes, things like that. And you couldn't have those grains on a keto diet. But, you know, the market and the industry, they're starting to produce things that mm-hmm. allow you to have kind of like a grain replacement or a bread replacement there. Yeah. So what's happening is that reduction in carbohydrate is putting your body into a metabolic state called ketosis. Mm -hmm. And that's where the name originates from. And so the liver is going to turn fat that you're consuming into ketones and they're going to use the body is going to use those ketones for energy Um, since we are that the person, whoever's consuming, um, following the diet isn't consuming carbs, which would give us glucose, which typically would provide energy for ourselves. Got it. Yes. So some of the background is keto has some similarities to the Atkins diet, which, you know, was more in the 90s. prevalent in the 90s. <laughs> um, and then some other, you know, just low carb diets. Sure. It is clinically used to treat epilepsy um, and the prevention of seizures. So kind of the starvation state results in a decrease in that seizure activity. And the mechanism isn't fully understood, but they do know that it does have um, a positive effect on that. So it's known as the ketogenic nutrition therapy. And it's essentially following the same thing to mimic that starvation state. 
I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I always understood this as, okay, I'm going to get a little bit into the like biology here and kind of metabolism of it all, but because this is the first time I'm actually hearing of like the, the process of why this is helpful for not only epilepsy, but also things like brain cancer, brain mm-hmm. tumors, is because we have something called the blood-brain barrier um, that allows certain molecules in the blood to travel from the rest of your body to the brain. And it's essentially, you can think of it as like a cheesecloth where uh, only tiny, tiny, tiny molecules are allowed to travel up to the brain and feed the brain, do its processes, whatever, uh, which is why it's so hard to target brain cancer because they can't get chemo drugs that small to pass through the blood-brain mm-hmm. barrier to treat the cancer. Um, and so I always thought that because glucose is so small, it can pass through the blood-brain barrier and ketone bodies may not pass through as excessively as well as it's a little bit difficult on the body to make. And so that's why you see a lesser amount of symptoms in epileptic people because you're essentially not feeding the disease. Mm-hmm. Is I That's the most recent things I've read. Of, okay. That's what they've indicated okay. as well. Got mm-hmm. it. So that's kind of the theory behind it. Got it. Mm-hmm. Just making sure I'm not lying to people. Yes. No, that's, <laughs> my, that's my understanding as well. Okay. Yeah. So like I said, typically used to treat epilepsy. Um, and then, yeah, that kind of wraps up there. Okay, for background. Um, so let's let's talk about why. Um, I mean, this can be kind of anecdotal too. Like, why do you think it's so popular, and what are some potential benefits of, mm-hmm. of transitioning to the keto diet? Yeah, I think you know the main reason that people are following this diet is for quick weight loss. It is mm-hmm. pretty effective if followed correctly mm-hmm. to um, have that result. Quick weight loss, which yeah. is what most people are desiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's why it's really prevalent and prominent throughout at least the U.S., you know, our culture yeah. here. Um, and probably because your insulin levels are low because you're not consuming carbohydrates yes. and you're not in that storage exactly. phase. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, some other perceived benefits are like increased energy. Um, and then, like you just mentioned, reduction in blood sugar and insulin um, because we aren't consuming the carbs on this diet. And then there's also been some um, research that says that there, it can result in a reduction in diastolic blood pressure and then triglyceride levels, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, if you're following it exactly as you should be to get in that state of ketosis, then it could result in that. Great. Mm-hmm. So what? So you can eat basically meats, fats. You can't consume carbohydrates. What about like alcohol and and that kind of, you know, definitely no beer. I think yeah, I, think, I would say uh, no beer because of the carbs. <laughs> I think that's like a case by case basis on how people feel about alcohol oh. and how important that is. But that is carbohydrate. Yes. So it would be advised to eliminate that as well if you yes. want a true keto diet. Right. So if you're think, truly following the keto diet. Yeah. Yes. Then. And that like to me when I hear people who either come into my office or I hear it, you know, just on the street amongst friends, amongst family, people who are doing keto, there's a lot of um, like discrepancy between what is actually a true keto diet and it's really funny to me. Not funny. It's just interesting to me where people will make the exception, right? And Mm -hmm. a true keto diet is a four to one uh, fat to carb ratio. And a lot of people out there aren't adhering to that very specific carb, um, excuse me, fat to carb ratio for things like alcohol or, you know, a litany of other things. Um, But something that I noticed kind of like this, something that you can really take into consideration for all the things we're going to discuss today is like at its most basic form, like what you're eliminating. So processed refined carbohydrates, sugar sweetened beverages, pastas, candies, cookies, blah, blah, blah. Once you take that out of the equation, you're taking a lot of calories out. You're taking a lot of foods that were providing excess nutrition, Mm -hmm. excess calories, excess sugar 
out of the diet. And once you do that, just that even, I mean, it's not a very small step, but that one single step can result in a lot of weight loss or, you know, other metabolic uh, changes. Yes. That's how I feel. Yeah. You covered a bunch of things that that I think are exactly right. You know, there's so many variables and people are kind of applying it as they see fit. So they may not be following a true like ketosis state diet, um, like you mentioned with the alcohol or, you know, how many grams of carbs you can consume. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly. All right. So what are some challenges to the keto diet? I think we just kind of talked about a few of them. Yeah. And just a quick kind of summary is it's just it is difficult to maintain long term. It's not very sustainable, um, Mm -hmm. the diet itself. And then, like we've mentioned, if not followed correctly, you're essentially consuming a very high-fat diet if you're not getting in that state of ketosis, which we know um, high-fat diet has long-term effects on, um, you know, our cholesterol and our overall health and can contribute to chronic disease development down the line. So um, that's, you know, not, not super great there. And then it's not suitable for, you know, all individuals. You know, if you already have hyperlipidemia, it's not going to be a super or a suitable diet if um, not followed correctly. And then, you know, there's limitations like with vegetarians or vegans. It can mm-hmm. be like it's doable, but it can be um, just another added restriction on top of, yeah. of a diet. And then you're at risk for micronutrient deficiencies there. Yeah. And then some other just a few undesirable side effects, like we mentioned, the hyperlipidemia um, and then from like a dietitian standpoint, the constipation, because it's going to be a very low fiber diet, Um, you know, and then fiber has a lot of benefits. And so you're essentially cutting out all those plant foods Mm -hmm. that contain a lot of that fiber. And Mm -hmm. then something that I've heard from people and noticed is that there's like just on the emotional kind of side, people become cranky or tired because you're cutting off the, you know, main form of energy for our central nervous scent. System, sorry, <laughs> central nervous center system. So, like the carbohydrates provide that energy, and you're restricting that. So, yeah. I've yeah. noticed that. Also, I'd just people. be sad to say no to yes. birthday cake. Yeah, I all know. those good carbohydrate foods. Well, and I also, um, we're going to get into recommendations in a little bit here, but I think that there's a difference between low carb, which keto is not no carb, it's low right. carb. Mm-hmm. And then there are so many, again, depending on what kind of person you are and how far you're willing to take this into your life, like how you want to do it. You know, there's such thing as quote unquote dirty keto, which is like bacon and butter for din- for right. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then there's an appropriate keto, I guess that's kind of my opinion, sorry, uh, where you still incorporate non-starchy vegetables, mm-hmm. where um, low sugar fruits like berries are yes. still incorporated. And so you can kind of get your fiber that way, get your micronutrients that way. Um, but there's so many different ways people are doing this, which is a kind of cause for a problem because it's like, okay, well, what's the right way? What do I do? Right. And yeah, like, just like you're saying, I was doing some research and I think there was like five variations of Mm -hmm. the keto diet. It's like, oh Mm -hmm. my goodness. That's a lot of, you know, information out there. Yeah. And I remember in school learning about the keto diet in the context of epilepsy and and treating other um, disease states that there's, you know, different ratios and there are Mm -hmm. different ways that you can do it. So like more traditionally, it's the four to one fat to carb ratio, but then there's like a three to one or all my dietitians. Who has time for that? Who's (laughs) logging that and calculating that? (laughs) And I actually heard from the dietitian who was over at USC in their like, um, I want to say it's their epilepsy center. That is not what it's called. But essentially, their like research facility that treats epilepsy, and that's where the keto diet was um, kind of uh, proposed for the treatment of epilepsy, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, but they talk a lot about that, and it's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so 
uh, before we, I get too ahead of you, Gabby, sorry, mm-hmm. um, what are some recommendations to the people out there who see a promising benefit for keto? They're really interested in trying it. Like, what's the best advice we can give? Yeah, I think, you know, do your research and reach out to a registered dietitian. You know, there's lots of us available mm-hmm. to really get some scientific, you know, research-based um, information mm-hmm. and and find out if that would be a suitable diet for you and, and have that discussion with them. Uh, you know, your background, um, your lifestyle, other things that are going on to kind of discuss that. And then if it, between the two of you, decide that it is something that you want to implement, you know, work with your dietitian and your PCP to safely implement this diet. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just want to kind of echo that. I think it's really important to think about your own personal diet and lifestyle. I mean, what kind of job you have, how many kids you have, things like that. Um, before you take on any of these diets, uh, it's important to, to, you know, kind of examine, is this something that I can do long-term? And I think that that's what you'll hear us say over and over again is the reason we might not be a huge fan of these things. It's because we don't see the longevity with it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. All right. Any last words on the keto diet guys? Have any of you tried it? No, no, <laughs> no. I don't I think can. I could do it. But it is definitely the number one diet that I hear people yes. trying for yeah. all sorts of different reasons, hoping yeah. to improve their health. Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, okay, so definitely some clinical significance, definitely some lifestyle significance, uh, pros cons. Hopefully, um, you know, you guys have some questions that have been answered and cleared up. But for now, let's move on to intermittent fasting. Uh, I say this with a huge smile on my face. One, It's the one that I'm going to be talking to you guys about. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about this because there are some, like, professional implications as a dietitian. I feel there are, like, conflicting emotions and feelings I have around this. But I'm actually really glad that I gave myself this diet to do a little bit more research on because, um, you know, I've really changed how I feel about it. And I think it's got some really promising benefits as well as, you know, can a- apply to some of you, if not most of you. And for some of you, it's not going to work. But um, anyway, excited to talk to you guys about it. Let's start with uh, the history of this. So the concept of fasting, we'll just say fasting in general, you'll hear me talk a lot, like a few different ways about fasting in terms of intermittent fasting, alternate day fasting, blah, blah, blah. Again, so much discrepancy, and I'll hopefully um, identify all of these for you. Um, But it was actually born in the United Kingdom, and it was uh, called something like the fast diet. Have you guys ever heard of this? Mm -hmm. Okay, I had never heard of this. So essentially what this was, you you do a calorie restriction on two days of the week, but not consecutively. So typically it would be desirable to break it up with one day of normal eating in between at least. Um, and this fasting consisted of no more than like 500 to 600 calories a day on the fasting day, which is interesting because when I think of fasting, I think of, you know, absolute calorie restriction, Mm -hmm. but, um, 500 for females, 600 for males. Um, and then, you know, historically fasting has its place in, you know, history in religion in different cultures. Um, so it's not something new. Uh, it's been around for a long time. And we all fast every day mm-hmm. and, and at some also point. That, exactly. At some point when we're sleeping, you know, nocturnally, we all fast. So whether or not you're a pro-intermittent fasting person, alternate day fasting person, you're going to be fasting at some point. Uh, so, yeah, important. <laughs> okay, so there are so many different ways. Now, since, you know, even before in the U.K. came up with the fast diet, uh, people have been fasting and calling it whatever they want. And like I said, it goes dates back 
many, many years ago. Um, but now we look at it in so many different ways and there are so many different ways you can fast and it's kind of a lot to wrap your head around. So I'm just going to talk about the three ones that I think are most prominent. So the first one is alternate day fasting. So this um, is, uh, I would say, most um, stringent, most strict. So, uh, so fasting days where you have you know little to no energy containing foods, followed by normal days of non-fasting, where you can have a normal day of eating, or even some people will say make up for the day prior and double your calories, which just FYI, there's no clinical significance or research significance to weight loss or any of the other positive effects of fasting. So I definitely don't recommend that. But alternate day fasting, fasting one day, not fasting the other day. Um, Then there's a modified intermittent fasting. So that's most similar to the fast diet where you've got one to two days throughout the week where you're fasting, you have a massive calorie restriction, and then that's followed by non-fasting days. Um, I would say the most popular way to do this is to not fast um, on five days and then two days do a modified fast of that like five to 600 calories. So the five to approach. Um, and then the third one, which is probably what we've all heard of most is time restricted feeding. So that's when you hear people talking about their eating window. Um, and this allows for, uh, like ad libitum, which is essentially just like at will intake for your feeding window, which is typically eight hours. That's what we hear. Um, and then 16, you're fasting and this is every day. Um, so you might eat between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. You might eat between 12 p.m. and 8 p.m. Um, and this is also where you allow most of that fasting to take place overnight, which is something that happens in general. I mean, I guess I can't say for everybody. Maybe some of you get up and eat, but, <laughs> uh, but for most people, this is what happens. Um, and this is probably the more realistic method of intermittent fasting um, <clears throat> because it already mimics kind of this instinctual eating pattern that we have, right? Fasting over the nighttime. Um, okay, so so many ways you can do this depending on how long you as an individual person can go without energy consumption. Um, and depending on, you know, what that is, whether, you know, what defines restriction, right? Is that a complete absolute no calories or is it a negligible amount like 500? So different ways to do this. Let's go over the positives. Let's just talk Mm -hmm. about some things that I actually like and appreciate. Um, so if you think about normal dieting, I mean, and that can be the keto diet, that can be Atkins, that can be whatever it is, or maybe you're just going on a quote unquote diet. It typically involves some type of restriction, whether calorically, a food group, what have you, every single day. Whereas intermittent fasting is just maybe a couple days of the week um, that you're restricting or, you know, just a certain window of the day. So for some people, adherence might be a you know, a lot easier to something like fasting versus slap a diet on you, have restriction every day, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Secondly, the benefits are there in the research. The data are there. Um, Most studies we're talking about are animal studies, and that's not to balk at it or or not think that it's um, uh, relevant or meaningful because it definitely is. However, in the last 10 years, there have been quite a few human studies on intermittent fasting. And again, so many different variables, what kind of fasting, what diets they're comparing. um, It's it's all there's a lot to look at. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, But anyway, studies have highlighted associations between intermittent fasting and weight loss, fat loss, reduced insulin production, which Kim brought up a good point before we started recording today that um, if your insulin is high, you're going to be 
packing on nutrition, right? You are generating energy stores, which means it's going to be really hard for you to lose weight um, and have fat loss at the same time. Those things can happen together. So you want your insulin ideally low. Uh, so intermittent fasting can reduce your insulin production. It can also improve co cognitive function. It can increase longevity. Um, it can improve mood. Uh, and it can also decrease um, the rates or effects of diseases such as diabetes and certain types of cancer. Can we go back to the mood for a second? Yeah, go ahead. I think it's interesting to think about people being cranky on diets, but mm -hmm. the amount amount of um, the people who are proponents of intermittent fasting prefer to do work, prefer to socialize, and prefer to be productive during yeah. their fasting times yep. because they find their brain sharper mm -hmm. and more able to function at that high level. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and that's legitimate. Um, uh, okay. So... The, like I said, so much data. There's tons of mice studies and other animal studies. And now in the last 10 years, there's tons of human data as well. But kind of like the official tagline of anybody in research, we need more data. <laughs> um, we need, you know, to, to have some more absolutes and definitives. We need more data. We need more human data. We also need data from larger subject populations, a.k.a. more people. Um, and that's just, you know, more people from different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds, socio socioeconomic status, as well as just larger numbers of, of these mm -hmm. people in these studies um, to definitively say anything, even though you'll hear me say things pretty definitively today. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I do want to bring up that. Studies have looked at whether syncing your fasting with your circadian clock, um, which if you're not familiar with the term circadian, it's circadian. It's essentially, if you don't already know this, our body runs on a 24-hour cycle, um, which is really interesting. And essentially, the biggest external stimulus that dictates this 24-hour cycle is night and day. And so our body responds to night and day with different hormone cascades, metabolism, different biological processes, processes in your body that all are dictated by light and day. Um, so there was a study conducted at the University of Alabama that suggests eating in alignment with your body's circadian clock could potentially influence your health in several ways positively. Um, so according to researchers and many researchers from many places who have studied metabolism and the science of it, um, believe that uh, or postulate that your body functions metabolically the best in the earlier hours of the day, which suggests that if you start your eating window um, earlier in the morning and then cut it off, you know, um, earlier into the evening, uh, you will produce better weight loss outcomes. So, so eat earlier, don't eat at night, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sync it up with your day-night rhythm. Exactly. And I'm going to get into a little bit about like, okay, well, how do we establish an eating window? Where did that come from? Um, keep listening because it's really funny slash interesting. Um, and, and even though, of course, at the end of this, I'm going to say consult your registered dietitian or healthcare professional, um, there are some things that you can look into to tr maybe, you know, trial an eating window that might work for you, um, without talking about, uh, uh, talking to a dietitian, even though I suggest you talk to a dietitian. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so actually let's get into that now. Okay. So it is hard to prescribe when to eat and when to fast. I will say it's actually more important to look at when an optimal time to fast would be. And typically, like we said, that's going to be over the nighttime when we're already kind of instinctively fasting. Um, but it's hard to slap a, a window on the general public because there's so many different variables, right? Like what if you're a shift worker? What mm -hmm. if you work at night? That's going right. to be incredibly difficult to uh, fast over the nocturnal evening, the nocturnal night, which is typically when most of us fast. Um, and then also what are we going to prescribe you uh, wake up every two hours while you're sleeping during the day to, to eat your food, obviously that's not going to work for you. There's also different things to consider, like 
um, uh, what you uh, what your metabolic state is. Do you have any current diseases? You know, your family style, your life, your day to day lifestyle. Anyway, um, lots of, of things to 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 take into consideration there. I will say, generally speaking, it's advised to eat at least one hour after waking up. So let's say you wake up at six o'clock, don't have food until seven. Um, and then to at least stop eating at least two to three hours before sleeping. Um, I will say when you consider an eating window to consider the times of the day that you're most active and that's when you want to have your eating window open. So let's say you start your job, you work from eight to four. Okay. You're probably active unless you have a sedentary job and then you might want to consider incorporating some more activity into your job like walking or getting a standing desk or something like that. Um, but things to consider like that, when are you most active and then operate your eating window from that. Um, <clears throat> always consult an expert to set a feeding schedule and um, they'll work with you to, to figure out what works well with your body. But um, like, you know, going back to that feeding window when you're talking about you know, just defining that feeding window, that would be like the hours that you're eating. So if you're going to try to follow something where you're fasting for 16 hours and only eating for eight hours of the day, maybe starting that during your more active times of the day. Mm -hmm. But you think about like you're already using that 12 hour period of the night where yeah. you're in bed or, mm -hmm. you know, around bedtime yeah. and yeah. sleeping. It's definitely an interesting point. Um, okay, I want to get into some side effects, but quickly I have to tell you guys where the eight-hour feeding window came into play. Um, and I've heard this many times. So I know it's legitimate. Uh, okay, so the eight-hour feeding window became – so the, the person who initially started researching this in graduate school, and I'm not – I don't remember his name right now. Um, but you can imagine uh, conducting a feeding study around intermittent fasting is really hard, especially like let's say you're working with mice, right? Like mice uh, hide food. They pouch food in their cheeks. They – um, all of these things that make it really complex. And so they have to be really carefully watched during this eating window. And then when the eating window is up, the food has to be taken out, not only of their cheeks, but wherever they're hiding it to make sure that, you know, there are no possible outliers in the mm -hmm. study, right? And so that in combination with the person who did this research, do you remember this? I do remember. The person who did this research was dating someone at the time who, uh, like, would not allow any, like, lab work to be done outside of lab hours. And so he conducted this eight-hour window, this feeding window, because that was the only time he could be allowed into the lab to conduct this research per his significant partner, other. His significant <laughs> other. And so that's what dictated the eight-hour feeding window for this gentleman. And then we've kind of just adapted it. One, because, you know, eight-hour workdays are pretty um, commonplace and uh, work for most people. But all this to say, work with a professional, figure out what works for you. Maybe it's a 10-hour feeding window. Maybe it's a 12-hour feeding window. Um and what works for you might not work for your neighbor. So just, it's all different. Um, okay, really quickly, one minute, some side effects. Uh, this is a really, this can be a restrictive diet, right? So you're going to have sometimes symptoms of hunger, temperature changes, fatigue, headache, low energy, ir irritability. And this is also important why it's, this is also why it's important to work with a healthcare professional because you need to understand what to do in times that you're feeling like that. Um, also, you know, if you're doing alternate day fasting, that continuous fast, uh, uh, alternating between fasting and non-fasting can cause some like GI issues such as gas, bloating, constipation. The other variable is also kind of what you're eating in that eating window to cause GI distress. So again, so many variables. Um, so, uh, you know, any, um, <clears throat> let's see, feelings and behaviors toward 
new diets, new protocols can really vary significantly among individuals. And that's why I sound like a broken record and I can't say it more than enough to just, you know, work with a professional on this and, um, you know, continue to communicate about your tolerance, about your adherence um, and make shifts where we're we're necessary. And like making those shifts too, based on like what you intuitively know about your body. Mm Yeah. Like you learn so much about yourself when you take on a new lifestyle or a new approach to eating and I think that this is no exception where, you know, if you feel like you can actually sustain like this 10-hour feeding window for a long period of time and you feel benefits from it, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But if you don't think you can get to eight, that's okay. But just sort of using bits and pieces from different lifestyle approaches, I think, is a great tool that we have just as humans to be able to know ourselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And like I said in the beginning, uh, compliance issues, you know, those vary. Um, Contraindications. If you have type 1 diabetes, if you're insulin dependent with type 2 diabetes, um, if you suffer from hypoglycemia, specific medications that require the consumption of food, um, if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, typically those individuals should not be following an intermittent fasting eating pattern. That gets into many complexities, and we'll save that Mm -hmm. for another time. Um, But like I said, Consult a healthcare professional before you do any of this, regardless of what your, um, you know, you, what you've got going on. I'm going to drop some resources in the show notes um, before I talk about them, and we have a few minutes left. So, Kim, please talk to us about paleo. <laughs> <clears throat> wow, that's a hard one to follow up. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. I like the paleo diet because I do feel um, I like to talk about it because it is something I heard about more in like 2015 than I do now. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like fallen off a little bit, but it is still something that I think I hear people, particularly in terms of, um, it has some similarities to um, like the Whole30, which many people have heard of that Mm -hmm. it's an elimination type diet. Mm -hmm. Um, And in general, like I think there are a lot of pros and pros to this type of eating as well. Um, So basically, if you aren't familiar, the paleo diet, the whole idea is to eat in line with how people ate during the Paleolithic period, which ended about, I think, 3,000 years ago. Um, And the idea is, is that there's like a genetic mismatch with like how our bodies have developed versus the foods we're eating now. So this is supposed to get us more in line with eating how maybe we were um, evolved to eat. So... It includes a lot of proteins, vegetables, fruits, seeds, and nuts, um, and then pretty much foods that were more prominent before we started, like, farming. And so you're not eating, you know, grains and legumes and dairy products, which came in much later when we did start to farm our own food. Um, I always think about who was the person who decided, I'm going to try and milk this cow. I know. To see what happens. <laughs> like, well, why who hurt you? Yeah, and, you know, the idea is that... There are many. That said, I do love my Greek yogurt. I, you know what? <laughs> I, I'm 19 weeks pregnant and I love milk right now. And I have it since I was a kid. So. And the idea is, is there's a lot of chronic disease processes that are all inflammatory and eating these types of foods are less inflammatory and eating some of these farmed foods are more inflammatory due to different, different pro, um, nutrient um, contents. So... You know, I think it's it's a great way of eating because it does include foods that are nutrient-dense and sort of eliminates a lot of those processed foods and flours that tend to have less nutrients but more calories and can mm-hmm. help us, you know, cause a lot of weight gain and things like that. And for many people, it's sustainable because it doesn't really restrict your calorie intake. It just sort of is like redirecting your calories into to more yeah. whole foods, um, whole foods that occur in nature. Um And it is a diet where it's not like keto where you're out of ketosis if you Mm -hmm. overeat on carbs or something like that. It's like 
sort of like you can still have a paleo diet, you know, probably 90% of the time and then 10% of the time decide you're going to have that piece of chocolate cake um, and, and that type of thing. So some people, res- you know, do respond well to this type of diet and protocol and they like more strict rules and things like that to follow and in terms of their lifestyle. Um, and there are definite cons here. Like, you know, you are eliminating many source of plant proteins, which are full of nutrients um, and minerals. And so those those greens and legumes that you aren't consuming, you know, contain a lot of really great things for you that you're you're not consuming. Um, and then also the modern paleo diet often includes three meals a day that most people eat. Um, it can be really meat heavy and it's not necessarily environmentally friendly. And also it may or may not be super in line with how people actually did eat during the Paleolithic <laughs> period. Because, you know, when you were in that period of time, you kind of ate what you could, mm-hmm. when you could. Yeah. And most yeah. people didn't have access to like fresh fish and mm-hmm. meat and berries all right. at the same time. It was probably like I didn't eat for a couple of days and then we killed something yeah. and now we're eating that animal <laughs> and then here's some berries. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, it is it's interesting, you know, just how we evolve these to meet our own lifestyles. <laughs> but, um, you know, also like people only live to about 35 back in the Paleolithic period due to all sorts of things like danger. A really, really <laughs> important fact that when people bring up how we used to eat as hunters and gatherers, um, they kind of fail to acknowledge that. Right. Yes. And, and a lot of it was due to like infectious sure. diseases or, right. you know, outright danger or mm-hmm. exposure to elements it's, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know, like, what would have happened if people continued to eat like this forever? Does it really promote more longevity than, than you know, some of these more modern diets that we've come into? So overall, I think it's a great diet to try uh, to incorporate pieces of. I think, you know, anytime, like we've said before, you're eliminating processed foods mm-hmm. um, and refined flours and things like that. I think it's it's not a bad thing. You're usually going to eat something a little more nutrient dense and that's better for your body. So I think it's a it's an OK one to consider. Um, there are obviously adherence issues with it, but um, it's it's not overall unhealthy. Yeah. A lot of. Uh, concepts I can kind of take um, and appreciate, which I think is the overwhelming theme for all of this. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we pointed out some positives. We pointed out some you know, reasons to uh, maybe not adhere to this long term, if you can adhere to it long term. But I think the overwhelming takeaway here is talk to your healthcare professionals, talk to your dietitians, figure out what works for you, figure out what works for your lifestyle, um, and go from there. Try things out. If you feel too restricted, don't do it. You don't have to be married to every single component of every single diet. You can take key takeaways out and mm-hmm. kind of formulate your own thing that works for you, which is really, as a dietitian, what I want you to do. I want you to be in control. I want you to make decisions. Um, and with that, it is 11 o'clock here. We are cutting it off. Thank you, everybody. Um, we will most likely bring these topic ba- topics back at some point since we could probably talk for mm-hmm. hours about this. Um, but thank you for listening, and we look forward to chatting with you guys next time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of St. Alphonsus Wellcast, brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Wellbeing and the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Always be sure to catch new episodes by subscribing to us through all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. We hope you'll tune in again. Until then, be well.